This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Today, I am excited to have Vince Graham on the show. Now, Vince is one of the first people I met when I moved down to Charleston. I don't even remember who introduced us, but uh, very, very deep thinker and an interesting guy. In fact, the first Praxis opening seminar was held at a castle that Vince owns on (laughs) Sullivan's Island, South Carolina. It's an absolutely amazing, uh, amazing place, an old church building that's... um, he uh, he redid into a, a castle. He is a deep thinker, a real estate developer. Really, really, I, I see Vince as a philosopher whose canvas, instead of writing white papers, he actually builds and designs neighborhoods and lets his philosophy uh, be demonstrated in the real world in the way things are designed. So welcome, Vince. Well, thank you, Isaac. That is the most generous introduction. Um I'll try to live up to it in my comments. Well, when you're used to dealing with, you know, county commissions and state boards and whatever, you know, you probably <laughs> you don't get a lot of uh, generous <laughs> intros from some of the, the bureaucrats that don't like your uh, ideas. Well, it's uh, not always. So uh, it's an extra measure of appreciation for your kind words. But thanks. It's uh, it's um, I'm honored to be on and uh, it's good to talk with you again. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to talk today about, you know, there's some themes that have come up numerous times on this podcast around the difference between kind of spontaneous order and imposed top-down, you know, planned order. Obviously, Hayek has been a big influence on me, Christopher Alexander to a lesser extent, and then to a lesser extent sort of secondarily or through other people because I've never really read her directly, Jane Jacobs. And I know that those are thinkers that are influential to you as well. Let I want to just talk a little bit about your philosophy, your approach to the built environment, the concept of um, scale. You've talked often about things being at a human scale and really how you got into this stuff. What what got you interested in uh, real estate development, urban, de- you know, urban design, for lack of a better word, I don't know all the terminology. How did you get into it and what sort of drew you into some of those intellectual influences? Okay. Well, that's, that's a big question. And, um, you know, I'm apt to go down rabbit holes, so you'll have to rein me in if I'm doing that. Go but, wherever uh, you want and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll bring you back if need be. Okay. Well, you know, I grew up and uh, I'm from Atlanta originally and grew up in Georgia and um, my father had gotten into real estate development, so in, in high school and college, um, you know, I worked construction during the summers and then went off to college, At uh, left Atlanta and went to the University of Virginia and um, was fortunate enough to walk around uh, Mr. Jefferson's university for four years and um, really enjoyed that, but came back to Atlanta, worked for a, for a bank and... Uh, that was a little too exciting for me, so I left there and got into the um, real estate brokerage business, and then uh, I took a job as a project manager um, for a for a real estate project in South Carolina, um, Spring Island, just south of Beaufort, between Beaufort and Hilton Head. And uh, I was 25, and I had um, I purchased my first home in Beaufort, which is 
for those who of your of your listeners who may not know, it's a it's kind of a small version of Charleston, beautiful little town on the coast between Charleston and Savannah. And I was struck, Isaac, by uh, when I moved there, just how how much I enjoyed it. You know, I could walk to church, I could walk downtown, I got to know everyone, and there was something about it. This 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 like it like at University of Virginia, you know, where you could walk everywhere. There was a close sense of community, and I think it was a combination of you know, having grown up in suburban Atlanta, gone to UVA, come back to suburban Atlanta, where I felt like I spent my whole life driving around. And then going to um, Beaufort, that the light bulb just went off, and and I said, well, you know, maybe we can uh, emulate this kind of uh, of uh, development pattern in new neighborhoods. And um, I had shared my thoughts with my with my uh, employers at the time, and um, they kind of patted me on the head and say, well. You know, sorry, Sonny. You know, that's a that's that's an adorable little idea, but we're doing something else. So anyway, they were super guys. I was working for Jim Chafin and Jim Light, great stewards of the land, but they just had a different idea for development. So ultimately, I left and um, and started my own company. There was uh, uh, just you know basically what I did. Isaac was just kind of observe the land use patterns of uh, historic places, the the ones that were most nearby and most inspiring at the time were Savannah, Charleston, and, and the historic part of Beaufort, um, and then try to discern what was it about those places, what were the virtues of those places that I liked, and, and, uh, and along the way, I found out about um, a place called Seaside in Florida that Robert and Daryl Davis were developing. That was great inspiration. I thought, well, if they can do it out in the middle of nowhere on the Panhandle, of Florida, certainly we can do it in coastal South Carolina, where we've, you know, we've got all these wonderful historical models, but all we've been doing is, you know, copying golf course communities. So that led to a development called New Point, and then some other little neighborhoods in Beaufort, and then our flagship neighborhood in Mount Pleasant called Ion. And, I've I've done some other things in the Carolinas and uh, in Virginia, but you know, sorry. No, I was just gonna say Ion is such a breathtakingly beautiful neighborhood. I, I'll go walk through there sometimes, um, and I know I've I've heard you talk about some of your philosophies of design and scale and sort of building neighborhoods with a that conform to the natural patterns of, of daily life. And I kind of, okay, I get it theoretically, but it wasn't until I experienced going through ION. And th- my challenge is I lack the intellectual infrastructure to know what it is about that. Actually, Christopher Alexander helped me with this in explaining how things can be more or less um, alive you can have sort of life giving or, or you know dead feeling spaces because they don't conform with natural human patterns but I still I, I know when I'm in ion or in you know old downtown Charleston that there's something about it that feels very vibrant and very peaceful and just really cool it has a lot of character but I don't understand what it is I, I don't I'm not observant enough to abstract from that so when you said you looked at those historical places that you love and I've even heard you reference Jericho before the oldest inhabited continually inhabited city in the world what are the patterns that you noticed what are the things that you said we can emulate that in a brand new neighborhood well there there are several um, the the 
the places that you reference, whether it be Jericho or you know Beaufort or Charleston, these historic places, they tend to be more compact. Um, they're not spread out everywhere. So it's relatively easy to walk from place to place, from your house to you know, to the little shop downtown or to your neighbor's house, you know, you can, you can, you can drive there to those places, you know, like Beaufort, but you can also get on your bike or, or just walk. So it's that compactness that, um, that is one element. They also have a, a network of streets and paths that are connected. Uh, it is sometimes a grid in these older places. You have, you have a, a network of streets, but they're more organic. They, 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 they kind of emerged over time. Um, and there's a big one for me. There's the mix of uses. You know, you, you have, uh, as I mentioned earlier, residential near commercial, near civic uses, and uh, I think the one of the things that that's that's so important from the standpoint of human scale is the speed in which the pace is relatively slow mm. compared to you know, most of the built environment now. And so if you and I think I should say too that there's a, a, a complementary relationship between the private realm of the the homes and the commercial buildings, what have you. And the public realm, the place we share in common, streets, parks, um, and you know the, the streets are beautiful, traffic calmed. They complement, they add value to the private realm of the homes. And then you would have these, like again in Beaufort or Charleston or Savannah, places like that. You have this beautiful architecture, and it uh, it complements the public realm, right? It makes this outdoor room if you will along the street that's that's whose walls are the the houses on either side and you have a tree canopy that grows up and forms a ceiling it makes this kind of room a comfortable place to be and it's it's most people and i think that's perhaps what you're feeling in a place like charleston or ion um you know most people would come in there and say oh well aren't these houses pretty it's the spaces between that uh, are very important. And that's what I think distinguishes our work is we spend a lot of time and effort on those in-between spaces. That is such a powerful insight. It reminds me of in drawing. I'm terrible at drawing. I'm not a good artist. And one of the reasons is I don't, I don't think naturally in terms of negative space. And you'll notice people who are good at drawing and shading and things, they utilize negative space. They don't just, you know, draw a line around the object that, you know, a, a human head or whatever. Here, here's an oval. Um, they'll just, they'll allow the negative space to do some of the work. And when you put it that way, that, that combined with this concept of the speed at which you experience something, it helps me understand a little bit why if people visit Charleston and they'll say, oh, I want to go kind of see some, some cool stuff. What should I see? I've never been here. I'll always tell them, go, go walk down King Street. Um, but don't, don't drive down King Street because people say, oh, I drove down King Street and I saw, you know, the shops and then I saw the, the houses and drove around the battery and it's all really pretty. But you actually miss the coolest, most interesting part about the city that because you're moving too fast. When you walk, you see in between the houses, there are all these little narrow pathways that open up into these little gardens and kind of 
hidden um, hidden open spaces in between the buildings. And they're often very beautiful with vines and trees hanging over and Spanish moss and flowers. And if you're moving too fast, you don't actually see them. And it's that negative space between the buildings that actually makes things so interesting and unique in this city. So th- those are really interesting. Ins- I mean, just when you said it immediately, something clicked for me. So that's why I need somebody like you to explain <laughs> what's, what's going on in the built world. Well, you are a, a very aware person, Isaac. So I don't know. Don't, I know you don't need much help. Um, it's but it's it's more than the, very eloquent in the way you put that and noticing these spaces at a slower speed. But you also relate to your fellow human being, right? That you in a way that you wouldn't if you were you know confined in a car. You even if it's just a nod the head or a smile at someone, and these kind of um, informal interactions help form the bonds of community. And so um, we think that's a, a, a positive thing. You know, you don't have to if you live in Ion or somewhere downtown Charleston. You don't have to go out and walk everywhere, but it just uh, and 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 come in contact with your fellow person. But it, it's an environment that enables it. And you mentioned Jericho earlier. So Jericho, at about ten thousand years old, is the oldest continuously occupied city. And you know, from Jericho to to 1920 or thereabouts, 30, 40, 50, um, it started accelerating. All towns, all neighborhoods were pretty much built in this compact, connected way. And traffic didn't move fast, faster than about until, you know, 1910 or so, unless you're on a train. But with the advent of the automobile, prior to that, you didn't move very fast. You know, you were on a horse, but mostly you were walking, or maybe you had a bicycle came online at the end of 19th century. And um, But it was a very slow human pace, human scale pace. So it's a, it's, it's interesting yeah. phenomenon. Well, and, and I want to get in a bit here to sort of roads and the, the changes along with that. The, um, you know, the insight that you have regarding the way that we experience these environments. There's, there's like a really valuable, I don't know, kind of the economic way of thinking involved, understanding that people respond to incentives and that everything involves trade-offs. So for example, as somebody who I love to drive, um, I like the open road. I'm, um, you know, enjoy going as fast as I can. When I go on a drive on a road, that's very narrow, which many of the roads around here are, my first thought is, oh, this road's so narrow. Why isn't it wider? You know, this is this is hampering me. I'm I'm trying to navigate, and you know, I have to go slower. Um, and the thing that I hate even more than that are things like speed bumps. And I never had thought of this until I saw a YouTube video of yours where you said that narrow roads, even though someone like me who's impatient can feel like, oh, this is sort of confining. It's actually preferable to because if you have a, a residential area. Uh, you don't want people flying around because you got kids run, you know, walking across the street and whatever. You don't want cars going really fast. And so what they typically do, they make the, the road really wide so you can have lots of cars. You don't feel confined. You can park and whatever. But then everyone goes too fast because people respond to incentives. And naturally, if you have more space, you're going to be you know, more aggressive with your driving. You have more room to adjust. And so then they'll say, we need to slow everyone down. So they'll put in speed bumps. And you had this really interesting observation that narrower roads and things like roads that have to, you know, wind to move around a a church building or a tree or whatever, naturally regulate speed. So you don't need these ugly, hideous speed bumps that like, you know, mess up your car and make everything look bad. 
And there's a reason that, you know, um, these walkable neighborhoods have narrow roads because it, it's a natural, it's a natural way to slow down traffic rather than to make a big, huge wide road and then slap speed bumps on it, which is sort of like creating a problem and then trying to solve the problem that you created. And I just thought that was a really interesting, it helped me be less irritated. Now, when I drive on a long point <laughs> road here in Charleston, which is very, very narrow, um, and you know, weaving around these live oak trees, I actually smile to myself because I think, isn't this better than having speed bumps? <laughs> and you helped me see that. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. I think, you know, like you, Isaac, I enjoy driving too when you can actually drive. Um, but the urban environment, as you know, is so stop and go. And, and uh, if once you get out in the country or a place, a beautiful road that you can drive on, it's a delight to drive. But I think in the in the kind of... Uh, the way we've built the public ground within our within our cities is is not a pleasant place to drive. Mm. It's it's kind of a hassle, um, and I don't think to your points earlier. You know, if you can you can you can do things like well, if we just widen the road and you know it'll be create a easier flow condition, but then you start crowding out other forms of transportation as you increase the automobile speed. You impede the ability to, and you make it less comfortable to get around on foot or by bicycle. And again, the neighborhoods that we like to build, we want to create a free-range children environment. That's the goal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, parents feel comfortable just like, okay, yeah, go take off and, and enjoy the, you know, go out on your bike. And you can't do that if if uh, you have high-speed automobiles. It just, it's dangerous and it crowds out that uh, those other modes of transportation. You know, one interesting thing I never would have noticed before I had children about the way neighborhoods are designed that, that drives me nuts. And I'd be curious if, um, I don't, I don't, I'm thinking through, I can't remember the way that Ion handles this, but You've got all these kids walking and riding bikes, and there's sidewalks for them, okay? So they don't have to be on the road with the cars, which is great. Except the way that the houses are designed, you have the house and then the garage attached to it and the driveway that goes right up and crosses the sidewalk. And so you have all these cars parked in the driveway, and they all back out. And kids are riding really fast on the sidewalk, and it is, it'd be so much I tell my kids when they're riding their bike, ride in the road. Because you actually have more time if you see a car backing down the driveway, um, you have more time to to evade it and get out of the way. Because when you're on the sidewalk, often the bumper of the car is like a few feet away from the sidewalk. And if someone's backing out to go to work in the morning and they don't check, you know, every couple seconds, a, a car or I mean, a dog or a kid on a bike zooms behind you. And <laughs> and it's such a it's such a bad design. I always think to myself, this is so not conducive having sidewalks to to direct kids to for on their bikes and then having cars backing out across those sidewalks with basically blind you know sometimes there's bushes on each side so you can't even see if someone's coming um so it's just one of those things that you know it never would have occurred to me until i had children i realized the way that most neighborhoods are designed is actually not very conducive to the very things we want to do in those neighborhoods that's why you move to the suburbs so your kids can ride their bikes around you know right yeah what what is that is that something that you have in your neighborhoods you've developed how do you deal with things like that the interaction because everybody's going to own a car so the interaction of cars and and pedestrians and bicycles and things like that parking those things well and and ion specifically i mean we have a lot of uh we have a lot of rear lanes or alleys so um you don't have as many uh 
driveways intersecting a main road. But the other thing is, is that, you know, again, like you, I think it's probably safer for children to, or anyone to ride their bike in the street. But, but this gets back to the point of you have to calm that traffic speed down. Um, so you kind of create a, uh, an environment, a slow speed environment and a culture of kind of sharing that public realm with others. It's not just about the car. So I think maybe people are more used to pedestrians and bicyclists in a place like Ion or downtown Charleston. So they're more aware they're on the lookout. Um, so it's funny. That's when you, just, yeah. As I'm thinking through this, because, and we can talk about this in a minute as well. Both you and I are very free market people and, um, I want to ask you in, in a little bit whether you're sort of like anti-technology in general or not. Um, but there's an idea that the way I always feel when someone says like, oh, well, it's not just about cars, you know, share the road. You know, bikers are like riding in the middle of a 55 mile an hour road and, you know, with a sticker that says like share the road, bikers have rights too or whatever. Now, I get really irritated by this. I feel like get off the road, you hippie. But the, but the, but the reason the reason I think is because the roads have all been designed just for cars. And then as like an afterthought, it was like, oh, we should we should slap some bike stuff in here. And so then you throw like a bike lane on a highway and it all becomes very jumbled up. Whereas if you if you kind of build it from start, when I go in Ion, I don't feel annoyance. I feel like it's supposed to be this way. It feels very natural, whether driving or walking. Whereas if you go on like clearly a neighborhood designed for cars and then they slap a bike path in it as an afterthought, everything feels conflicting with each other. It's It's like you're mapping two different types of two different scale or speed of transportation into the same area in a way that just doesn't feel natural. So it's not necessarily about like, at least for me, it's not like anti-car, you know, pro bike, whatever. It's more about understanding the letting things kind of happen in a more natural way, the way that they would emerge. So that was a, that was a long windup, but it kind of leads me to that. This is a, a question that I've been fascinated with where, where did things go wrong in terms of, maybe they always have been, in terms of transportation infrastructure, cars, roads, and what what do you think would have emerged if government had not gotten involved and basically made this massive subsidy to, you know, the, the road industry? Um, so, you know, I guess at what point did things sort of get warped? Did the, did the natural market of what would have emerged around automobiles and everything get warped by sort of this big central planning mentality. Yeah, it's hard to pinpoint an exact date. Um, I, I think that you you really kind of saw a revolution in the built environment in the early 20th century. Um, the car, you know, was invented in, in Germany, um, but it was really popularized in the United States, particularly with Henry Ford coming out with the Model T in 1908 and then um, putting it on the assembly line in 1913 and, and mass producing it. Prior to that time, a car was a rich man's toy, and um, there weren't a lot of them. Um, but then with the advent of when, when Ford was able, you know, through his brilliance to get the price down, everybody could afford them. 
Now, the what was happening at the time prior to that, also the the, the the kind of common law Isaac was that everyone had equal access to a to a street to the to the public right of way. So whether or not you're on a horse or on a bike or or walking, you know everyone had equal access to the street. Um, and so. And, and most of those, most of those streets were, well, it was kind of a mix from what I understand. I know there was like 10,000 miles of turnpikes that were quasi privately operated. There were a lot of local roads that were sort of, you know, cow paths or some were owned by or maintained by municipalities. Some were private. It was kind of a more of a hodgepodge, correct? That's right. And, and to the extent that the government was involved um, it was at a local level. Okay. So municipality maintained their own streets. Um, or like you say, you know, generally the uh, longer distance travel was, was either by ship or by train, you know, private mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, even if, if you think about, again, back to my example, talking about the, the cities, You've seen pictures of old streetcars. Some cities, a few cities in the United States still have them. But the streetcar generally ran down the middle of a street, presupposing that the riders would walk out into the street to board it. And most of those streetcar systems were privately built and maintained, and um, they would just get a franchise with the city, just much like utilities do today. A franchise to operate their streetcar tracks, and they built the streetcar. So – so as the car became increasingly popular, the um, there was a lot of it's actually in the twenties and the teens and twenties it was um, there was a good bit of blowback to against motorists driving because a lot of people were getting killed and particularly children because again remember it had been first of all you had a prior to the car you had this very slow speed environment and that's where kids and everybody you know that's where kids would go play. There were no playgrounds. You'd just go play in the street. And so um, there was – it got so bad to the point that the bigger cities were actually erecting monuments in the middle of streets to the children who had been killed in the streets each year. I, I keep thinking for some reason of <laughs> that, that scene from the movie Wayne's World <laughs> where they're trying to play hockey in the street. And like uh-huh. every 30 seconds, they're like, car, and they have to pull the goals out of the way. And they say, game on. Uh, sorry, I know that's – you're talking about serious stuff here and children dying, and that scene would not leave my head. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but it's, but uh... it just, it's, a, it's a funny reminder of the, the oddity when playing in the street which is, you know, very natural in a neighborhood combined with these high-speed cars. It makes kind of an absurd situation. Yeah, it is. So I guess really you had two things going on then. You had, number one, in 1916, the federal government um, passed the first federal highway bill where they set up all the state departments of transportation, and that provided a venue to start uh, feeding or start funding using federal funds to um, to fund uh, automotive transportation in the states. And as you probably know your history, a few years before that, um, in 1913, you had the Federal Reserve Act and you had the Internal Revenue Act, which provided the federal government sources of this funding, sources of debt and sources of, of uh, revenue through taxation. 
So um, about the concurrent with this is when you had this kind of backlash against motorists and you had the, the car dealers and manufacturers and, and you know, the American Automobile Association, they like, we got to get together and, and how to figure out how to, how to do this. Cause we don't, we're not, there were places like Cincinnati that was that we're actually going to impose the use of, of, of governors on cars so that they couldn't go faster than 20 miles per hour. So basically they, they engaged in this public relations campaign to transform the way people um, viewed a street so that it was no longer belonged to everyone, but it was primarily for the use of a motorist. There's a great, uh, there's a great book on this subject called Fighting Traffic by a history professor from UVA named Peter Norton that uh, documents all this really well. But it was fascinating because in the space of like 15 or 20 years, like, well, I'll give you this little story from, from, from Dr. Norton's book. The, um, a jaywalker, you know, it used to be back in the day, a jay was kind of a country bumpkin come to town who would, you know, look up at the tall buildings and, 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 the, and the storefronts and, and they, they would bump into you, you know, because they were distracted and they didn't know how to walk. That was a jaywalker. Well, through this PR campaign, they changed that the idea of what a jaywalker was to someone who didn't cross in the right place. Hmm. So it's a it's an interesting um, things that were happening at the same time. And then so over through the 20s and then the 30s, you had these big public works projects, and uh, the the federal government continued to get more and more involved. And you basically just had the you know you you appropriated the authority and responsibility. For um, for the 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 construction and maintenance of roads, um, the federal government and the state government took it over, and you basically socialized the uh, the trans automotive transportation infrastructure, which was great if you're a car manufacturer, right? You know, unlike a train owner who has to build his own track or a streetcar operator, well, here we got the government do to do it for you. And I think that had the effect, a couple of things. One, as we mentioned earlier, you, you, it had the effect of crowding out other forms of transportation. You know, in Charleston, the streetcars couldn't compete. They went under. The ferries went under. Um, and then uh, it, it, backing up for a second, if you look at it and if you look at the history of transportation in context over the last hundred years compared to the previous hundred years – Previous hundred years, you had trains and steamships and bicycles and automobiles and you know subways and and all these forms of transport, different innovations in transportation. Over the last hundred years, we haven't had the same degree of innovation. You know, our cars are more comfortable and the sound system's better and they're safer, but it's basically the same four-tire steering wheel and internal combustion engine that Henry Ford was cranking out with a Model T a hundred years ago. Hmm. And as for roads, they're just bigger. So two things. You crowded out um, innovation and you just uh, and, and you crowded out other forms of transportation. Yeah, when you when you subsidize something, you get more of it, obviously. And having right. uh, use the use of eminent domain to, to level neighborhoods or you know take land and the subsidization of all of the roads clearly distorted the way that the, the the combination, the mix of transportation solutions that would have emerged in a free market. And it's very hard to imagine what that would have been. But as I think about it, there's sort of a weird, I feel like for 
really long distances, I always I always feel like it's weird that cars are as popular as they are. And I know a lot of this, like FAA regulations, for example, you can't you can't really legally set up like a, an Uber for airplanes, let's say, where you know somebody who owns a small plane could pick up a bunch of people, and it, it makes air travel is very restricted. I think artificially in some ways, um, and then. So you have cars being used for, in some ways, maybe longer distances or larger scale than would make sense. And then on the other side, you have cars being used for, you know, to drive around the corner to the store because that's the way the roads are laid out. I mean, I live I live less than a mile from a couple grocery stores, but the roads that they're on, I, there's no way I would ride my bike or set, send my kids there on, on foot. There's no other way but a, a car to get there. And so you have... You have this weird mapping of, I know you talk about scale a lot, something that that is a good solution for a certain scale uh, to get from maybe, you know, the suburbs, a 20 minute drive to town um, makes sense in, in some cases to get from one corner to the next using this high speed machine uh, is, is a little bit strange. And so, but by, by widening roads, building more of them, making everything very road centric, you've sort of created this incentive. And obviously the audio, the auto industry, the oil and gas industry benefit, those are huge, um, lobbying groups, taxpaying groups to the, to the federal government. And another element to this that I I was thinking about before the show was if you're a politician the incentive to continue to spend on infrastructure is tremendous because not only do you, you know, you generate, government generates a ton of revenue from the oil and gas industry. And so the more people driving, the better. Um, But from a sort of pork barrel, you know, public choice standpoint, it's one of the only places you can spend money that no one on either side of the aisle will complain about. So if you put more money into welfare programs, conservatives will complain. If you put more money into, you know, defense, liberals will complain. Whatever. If you put more money into roads, everyone will be happy. <laughs> and so well, it's, it's a, that's that's right, Isaac. That's an excellent observation. And uh, and you think about the just the the gas tax. Um, you know, in South Carolina, it's about eighteen and a half cents per gallon. Um, the federal gas tax is, I think, eighteen. It's about the same. So, thirty-six cents a gallon, um, and the oil company only makes five cents a gallon in profit. Hmm. So there is this incentive. They, you know, they they are a partner in the business, and they generate huge amounts of money, which they can then you know use to to satisfy people who are, who are clamoring just for ever more asphalt and build more roads, and uh, and then they have the some of their biggest contributors or. Um, People on the road contractors and engineers and uh, I say the politicians' biggest campaign contributors are these kind of people. So you kind of have this transportation industrial complex, right, set up that just perpetuates this. What what Um, do you think would – I mean I know this is like really hard to answer, but what do you imagine things would look like if – because it's easy for people to say, well, if you didn't have all that – I would hate to live in a world where I could only ever see people in my neighborhood or my small town. And they imagine, you know, if government didn't do it, there'd be no roads, there'd be no long distance travel. That's obviously not the case because there's definitely a market incentive for long distance transportation, for high speed transportation in some play, in some instances for cars. I mean, cars have a market value. They're not fully uh, a result of government subsidies. What do you imagine the mix of 
infrastructure and transportation would look like in a genuinely free market? Well, I think you'd have a, a much more, much broader choice, um, choices available. I mean, you said it. We, we don't know. We can't know what might have happened in the absence of this kind of socialized system. Maybe we, it would be kind of like it is now. Um, I, I kind of doubt it. But uh, – and I should say that the other thing that happened in that early um, – in the early 20th century was the imposition of zoning. Mm. So the government, we, we all the you know municipalities, counties, states adopted zoning over the subsequent few decades. What, what was the genesis of the uh, genesis of that? Because it seems like mixed use seems to make so much sense. What was the sort of political impetus in making laws that say this piece of property can only be used for this and and such? You know, it's uh, we could probably do a whole podcast on that. Um, <laughs> It's um, there. Part of it was this concern about oh, you had these you know smoke belching factories, and we have to keep them away from where people live. A legitimate point, right? Sure. I think a lot of it though had to do it was racially motivated. Uh. Um, the first comprehensive zoning ordinance was adopted actually two weeks after the first federal highway bill. Um, was adopted in 1916, and so the the, first, the country's first comprehensive zoning ordinance was in New York City in 1916. And at that time, you know, the preceding decades, you'd had this huge influx of um, Eastern European immigrants from Eastern Europe, and you also had the Great Migration, where huge numbers of of African Americans were moving up from the South, and uh, so people were like, "Whoa," you know. We got to pe- keep those people over there, hmm. and uh, and the shortly after that, five years after that, um, uh, Hoover, who was Hoover, no, who was the president before Roosevelt? Uh, um, it was Hoover, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. So, yeah. but prior to becoming president, he was the Secretary of Commerce, and he. He uh, got together this group of people to come up with federal guidelines for zoning, and they came up with model zoning ordinances. And so um, the states just took hold of that. You remember, this is in a progressive era where you had these, you know, experts were going to just plan the world for us, and everything was going to be great. Um, so that was one of the things. So the, anyway, I'm going down a rabbit hole. No, that I actually Isaac, wanted to, but, to get to that. The some of the urban renewal and kind of the racist roots of of some of that stuff as well. So this is a good. It's a good rabbit hole to go down. Con- continue. Yeah. Well, I just back to your question about what do I think would we would have? I mean, what what would the built environment be like? I think some of it would probably be like it is. I think you would see a lot more. Um, places like downtown Charleston or Ion or a 21st century version of Venice. I mean, who knows? We might even have a, some kind of a Jetsons world or Star Wars cloud cities or, you know, we would just have innovated and there would be these options and people could choose. Um, but, you know, it's uh, zoning essentially outlaws those kind of environments and imposes this kind of you know, spread everybody out, spread uses out, build big roads, and then oh my gosh, we have traffic congestion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is one of the one of the things I'm so impressed with you about is your level of patience. Because what I love about the market is 
we can let people try for themselves and decide what they like. And so you can say all you want that, oh, people just love cars. They want wide roads. They want whatever. Um, But the beautiful thing about a market is, okay, well, someone can develop a neighborhood with that in mind, sort of the traditional wide streets, sort of car-optimized setup. And someone can develop something more like what, what you describe on a more, you know, a scale for walking and biking, sort of this mixed use. And we can let the market decide. And that's with Ion, you create this thing. And I know you had a ton of pushback and flack and and barriers and and think people that were opposed to this idea. But what happened was it immediately became like the hottest place in Mount Pleasant. Everybody wants to live in Ion. It's a high demand place because once you experience it, you don't need to read Jane Jacobs or Hayek. You can just experience it and say, whoa, this is beautiful. This is preferable to the other subdivision with the McMansions and the driveways and the wide roads. I don't even have to know why. I just know I like it. And that will win out in the market. And in some instances, some people may not like that. Like I, I like privacy. I don't know if I would want to live somewhere where I'm really close to someone. I'd have to test it out and see. And, and you have all these options that emerge, but that's very hard. And I know with Ion itself, you've told me before that it's not what you wanted it to be because you had to make some compromises and you faced a lot of flack, even for some of the things that you did. You had to overcome a lot of regulations. How, how did you... How did you approach that? How did you deal with that? Did you have things that you simply wouldn't compromise? Or what was your process of working through this very rigid zoning, you know, regulatory environment to, to, to bring your vision about? Well, it's another podcast. Isaac. <laughs> we need like a 10 part series. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, zoning is in, in a way it can be thought of as the politicization of property rights, Mm. right? So you have to, um, if you want to change the zoning, you have to engage in a political campaign to do that. Um, And you have to win over, you know, you get a majority of votes on a council to um, agree with what you're proposing. And uh, it did take a long time to get ION approved. You know, my partners and, and ION are my Father Tom and my brother Jeff, and um, it took a couple of years to um, to to figure out what exactly could be supported um, and would be approved. Um, and uh, in the process, we did have to take out the multifamily. We had to reduce the number of thoroughfare types. We had to reduce the amount of commercial square footage and and just overall compromise the plan to get it approved almost to the point that we weren't going to do it but we felt that um well you know history lasts a long time so over time maybe we'll be able to get back some of the things that we wanted or maybe a future generation will do that Hmm. so um but i think it's i want to go back to some of the observations you've made isaac i mean you are an open-minded guy very curious intellectually curious and aware and thoughtful about things and also graceful. So you'll come into a place like Ion and say, I mean, it, 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 you might say, well, shoot, I can't, this isn't, I'm not able to drive fast here. <laughs> but then you, you'll understand why and you'll get that. You can relate. And, but that's, that's unusual. You're an unusual guy. A lot of people come in and feel the same way as you would, but some people come in and are like, oh my gosh, I have to slow down. And, you know, this, I can't drive as fast as I want. And that's, so people self select. 
right? Mm -hmm. Some people, it's different strokes for different folks. And um, even in ION, I mean, you said you liked your privacy, which I totally get. I'm a, you know, I'm a introvert and like my privacy too. But I like the opportunity to engage with others. Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. ION has, I mean, just to 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 put it and really um, kind of overly simplify it. That, my view is some people want to be where the action is. Some want to, people want to be off on their own at the end of a you know little dirt roads. Most people want something in between. So we try to offer different different opportunities for people who have those preferences. What's so cool is the the mix of and I know you said you didn't get to do as much of this as you want. The different the different types of things that are going on all at once. So typically you think if you want to walk around to coffee shops. We got to drive and park in a parking structure and go to some sort of downtown area that has office buildings and coffee shops. If you want to walk through a park, you drive or walk or ride your bike to a park, which is somewhere separate from, but maybe near to houses. If you want to walk around houses, you go to a neighborhood. You want to go to the lake, you go to the lake. These are all separate places, but Ion has this really interesting mix. There are houses that are along canals, almost very European style that, that have, you know, gardens that are right up along the edge of a canal that connects some lakes. There are sort of streets that feel more wooded. There are open parks and grassy areas. There are, there are commercial areas, like you mentioned with uh, coffee shops and things like that, right along with the houses and that mixed use, it just feels so much more natural and conducive. And, and one of the things that I love about it, again, that I would not have appreciated until I had children is I want my kids to not be kept in a holding tank completely separate from the real world for like 15 or 20 years and then, you know, emerge into the world and like, okay, go figure it out, you know, get a house, get a right. job, but to be around commerce and all of the various parts of real life. And when you're, when you're in a neighborhood that's mixed, that has recreation and living spaces and businesses and it's walkable and rideable and kids don't feel unsafe, it allows kids to kind of run around free range and experience the world to see what it's like to run a, a shop or a business to, you know, in the same place where they live. So I love the, the mixture there, that combination. And it seems, correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be a big move towards mixed use that some of the zoning laws are starting to relax in a lot of cities. Is that true? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, people are, people are starting to realize that, you know, maybe we've gone too far, I mean, I'm still, that's most of the f country is zoned for this, um, you know, highly segregated uh, single-use zoning. But um, people are starting to recognize it. What do you think is an example? Like, what's the worst? Give me an example of a city that's kind of the central planner's dream that was sort of designed from the bottom up with this kind of mass produce top-down idea um are there any cities that are that are really bad in that direction well i mean you can just you just about pick any city in the country um at least the outskirts of it i mean it's charleston i think is an interesting case because you know as you well know we have this uh well-deserved internationally recognized brand of this beautiful urbanism with kind of semi-tropical environment with palmetto trees and live oaks and big porches and you know it's this wonderful place but that's only actually that's only on a few hundred acres of charleston and the city of charleston until 1960 was uh, all on the the charleston peninsula it's roughly 3000 acres 
Today, Charleston is 72,000 acres. Wow. It's bigger than it's, – it's about the same size as Washington, D.C. and Boston combined, but it only has 140,000 people. And so what happened is the city was uh, – they, they were – like a lot of cities, they were experiencing declining populations because – you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, we started building these roads and people got cars so they could move away. And the city leadership's like, oh my gosh, we're losing our tax base. So they started annexing land, you know, up Savannah Highway, um, Johns Island, James Island. And in South Carolina, they were able to do that because the, the state – Builds and maintains all the roads, or virtually all of them. So the city could reach out. They weren't. They didn't have that. They weren't governed by the discipline that is generally imposed by geography. They could reach out and grab that tax base down Savannah Highway without having to maintain the road because someone else was going to do that, right? The state. So anyway, it just kind of um, it just kind of uh, blew up, and and they as they would annex, they would just zone it for this kind of conventional segregated single-use zoning and so uh you know the even though we do have this internationally recognized brand of beautiful urbanism downtown that's only a very small percentage of the total city and so um and this other places i mean you can just about name any place in the country has done the same thing it's where they just they just you know started annexing and and growing and growing and building roads and you know just kind of I wonder, Just, what do you think of the trend? So now that, now that the internet has made communication anywhere possible without being in the same room as somebody. So I mean, there was a time where you know, largely because of zoning and and obviously roads and things like that, you this pattern developed where people work in some sort of downtown, some area with nothing but offices, and then they live. They want a little yard for their dog and whatever. They've got to basically live outside of the city in the suburbs, and they've got a big highway sort of between the two and parking lots and, and whatnot. And so you have this pattern that's um, you know creates a lot of the things, many of the things that you're you're sort of fighting against in some ways, and, and not all of them. There there are ways to do this. I think that's probably less uh, <laughs> less ugly. But you so this pattern was was sort of necessary because offices are separate from houses. You got to drive there. You got to work there. But now so many people can work remotely and can meet with people without traveling there. Do you think we are starting to see more people moving to rural settings or more people moving, making decisions about where they live, not based on the necessity of where they need to work, but based on the, the, the qualities that they want more broadly. And this is maybe waking people up to some of the things that they do want in their built environment. You think we're seeing a move towards the kind of neighborhoods that you favor? Well, I, I think so. It's, um, you know, it, it's changing again. People are, are realizing the, 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 the unsustainability of the what what we've been doing of this kind of socialized transportation and it's just like how are we going to keep doing this at the same time you have i mean you're seeing these trends like you know teenagers when i was when i turned 16 i was the first one in line on saturday morning to get my driver's license and now kids are saying uh 
you know, they're not getting their license till much later, or some some don't even want one. I've or, noticed you know, instead that. of instead of you know, I have friends with you know teenage children, and and it's rather than dad can I borrow the car keys, it's dad can I have the credit card to pay for Uber. <laughs> so um, it's uh, there's some it's you're going to see some big changes, I think, um, over the next few decades as you know autonomous vehicles and this trend back toward. Um, you know, with a lot of people want these more urban, walkable environments. Um, it's if you think about it, Isaac. The you know, again, in the context of ten thousand years of you know human settlement patterns from Jericho to now, this kind of artificial environment where, where we get the government to build automotive infrastructure everywhere and we get everywhere around in our car, it's kind of a fad. Yeah. In the context of ten thousand years, so. Who knows? I mean, it might. Um, you know, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make any predictions. But the trends, the trajectory, I think, is away from this kind of 50s, 60s mindset of just building roads everywhere, and you know, we'll drive, keep driving like that. Yeah, that's such an interesting perspective. I, I, when I think of it that way, that maybe we'll look back someday. Humans will look back at this epoch and say, "What a weird time when you had thousands of years of." you know, roads and infrastructure that kind of emerged in this way around horses and foot traffic. And then you had this automobile invented and we had that weird in-between phase where we tried to like map the two, cram them onto each other in this awkward way. Um, you know, until, cause I imagine, as you said, with autonomous cars and, and things like that, it's, it's not going to be government, you know, changing itself. It's going to be technological innovations that despite all the the ways that government hampers them still find a way around it and create an environment between, you know, internet um, telecommuting and, you know, autonomous vehicles where you need fewer and fewer roads and parking lots and you can use space, the space that you live in to be optimized for your sort of daily habits and walking and things like that and transportation to be much more um, restricted to, you know, the the areas where you need a, a road to traverse a long distance and you've got autonomous cars, you don't have all this traffic. And so I imagine that future. And I think when you look at that future and the past, you know, a hundred years ago, maybe you will see this as this awkward adolescence phase where humans had vehicles that they didn't quite know how to use in a way that like worked with human patterns, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I, got, I thought an interesting anecdote. I, I was doing some research for this and I, I thought this was just really funny. You always hear, always, every politician says that our, our infrastructure is crumbling. It's always crumbling. And you always have to put more money, more money into roads. And I thought, how interesting. Have you ever heard someone say, our shopping malls are crumbling? Or, you know, our grocery stores are crumbling? Or our garment industry is crumbling? You don't because those are privately run and they're not crumbling. If a shopping mall needs to go out of business, it will. But you never feel like that with other things. You never feel like, you know, our cell phone towers are crumbling um, because the the market will determine what the appropriate level is. But you have this big socialized good and it's just so easy to always think that we need more money, more roads, wider roads, more dumped into it. And at a time now, you sent me an article that was really interesting. You know, these road projects, these are sort of long term. These are five, 10 year plans for the Interstate Highway Commission or whatever, putting more and more money, billions of dollars into these things at a time where we're only a decade or so away from 
things like the autonomous vehicles, it seems like maybe the greatest boondoggle around. Am I, am I, am I wrong? Of course you're going to agree with me here, but (laughs) yeah, no, I don't think you're wrong. That's, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it, 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 getting back to something you were saying earlier about how in the future we might look back and say, oh my gosh, what were we doing? Why did we do that? Um, it's, but you know, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's big money. It's huge money, as we were talking about earlier, for, these, for this kind of transportation industrial complex. And then, you know, in the same way, we don't, you don't see politicians say, you're very few, we've got to keep cutting the budget on the military. We don't need to keep fighting these wars and have, you know, mili- we don't need to be the world police. But uh, that goes against the, the grain and the, and the, the bottom line of, um, of weapons contractors right yeah so okay so um, i gotta ask you this vince are you are you anti change and anti-technology in general or are you just opposed to the way that it's been sort of artificially stimulated in the case of of uh, transportation no i'm i'm a big i'm pro change and and uh and pro technology um i think that it doesn't always have to be high technology like if you think about it the like a computer chip keeps getting more and more powerful because they're able to to uh the computer scientists are able to fit more little transistors on a chip and it's highly connected and so our roads our, our cities used to be have these highly connected street networks that allowed traffic and not only automotive but but pedestrian traffic to diffuse through a system and that's not how we do it now. We build this one big central line, you know, that we keep widening it and widening it, even though, you know, if one person gets in a wreck, the whole thing, you know, collapses. It's like I compare it to, to remember in the, um, we used to watch the show, the Andy Griffith show. Did you ever see that? Oh, yeah. So remember when, um, when, when Andy would get on the phone and he'd call Sarah? <laughs> the operator Vaguely, to have, yeah. have to connect them to uh, you know Barney at some other location. So Sarah, connect me with Barney, and so they just have this one line. <laughs> that's how we do our. Uh, that's how we do our transportation, or that's how we've done it. We just have this one central core, one big pipe, and then we just kind of turns into a automotive sewer. But um, that's to me is anti technology. Hmm. Um, and this, these, these, uh, these kind of, I mean, I just look around Isaac and I say, if something has worked for a thousand or 5,000, 10,000 years, you know, maybe that has, is kind of a sustainable pattern. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's something in the, the beauty in the varied and sort of diverse, sometimes chaotic nature of the way things emerge, everything from stock markets to downtowns and mixed use neighborhoods that really bothers central planners, that sort of scientistic mind. And this is, you know, the genesis of things like urban renewal. Well, it's all so messy and, you know, we want to, we want to get the riffraff out of the, the, you know, there's poor people living right next to rich people. And this is terrible. You know, we, (laughs) we need to, to plow these neighborhoods and build it from scratch. And, and there's this desire to constrain and to make things more uniform so people are more controllable. I mean, this is basically what the 
education system <laughs> is designed yeah. for. But and and it bothers people. And I, I came across this quote by George Washington, who I think was, you know, had had a a dose of that, um, like many of the founding fathers, a dose of that kind of wisdom and understanding. You can't control everything, but still definitely had this sort of planner's mind that wants to map everything in a rational way. And he said something about New England's roads being chaotic and crooked, but they were designed (laughs) to suit the convenience of every man's field. And he sort of acknowledged that they, they kind of emerged in this, as you describe it, this network where there are multiple connections to sort of every node. Um, and it looks crazy and chaotic. I mean, if you were to map out the internet, you know, to someone who had no experience with it and say, this is the way information is being delivered. It's broken up into all these packets that are going in every direction. And there's all this redundancy and it's all, you know, it's kind of wild and crazy. You'd say that seems so inefficient compared to one big giant channel, you know, the way that a highway is designed with a few exits. But the way humans actually interact is so different than the way that planners imagine. And that's and that's kind of what I like about your your message and your philosophy. It's this very humble approach that says, let's just like you did. Let's observe what it makes the vibrant cities, the cities that have this cool feeling, what makes them what they are. Let's observe that and let's respond to that rather than trying to perfect human nature and physical nature and to conform it into this image that we sort of dream up. Let's actually look the way the world works in practice and work with those patterns. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thinking about – I'm, I'm slow on the uptake, Isaac, so I keep thinking about things that you've said and things that you – Well, you, I blab just a that lot point. too. So. <laughs> uh, well, just the kind of the technology. Um, you know, imagine if – you've probably seen these pictures online or something of these these big mainframe computers that they used to have in the 50s that, that you know, were the size of a big room. Um, imagine if at that time we had had some – version of zoning for technology and we said okay you have to have a minimum size computer we can't do anything smaller than that huh. or imagine going to a restaurant and saying you have to have a minimum you know 20 inch wide plate and a minimum portion of you know a pound of this and a pound of that and you can't have this kind of vegetable or that kind of vegetable. Imagine if you just had this kind of central planners in charge of those things. <laughs> Would we have improved or changed or, you know, it's, oh, but that's, that's what great. we do with transportation and land use. That is right? We have this knowledge. kind of, we have these, uh, we have these controls and it's um, like you were saying, it's just, you know, we have to, you know, tell everybody how they can do things. And because it's how we'd want to do it, there's no thoughtfulness towards, well, let's just see how it works. Let let it emerge. Let things happen. You know? Well, Vince, anyway. you, you have been fighting this uh, uphill battle, both in terms of, you know, philosophically writing and interviews and, and YouTube videos and, and, you know, town hall meetings, as well as in the marketplace itself, designing things, showing people a way that things can be better. And it's a, it's a heroic, it's a, it's a challenging battle because this is one of the areas where you can't just say the market will do a better job than, you know, forcibly taxing people and subsidizing things because, because it's been done by government for so long, 
people demand, really they demand the impossible, which I asked you in this interview. Okay, well explain to me in every detail exactly how it would look. You know, explain a counterfactual for me. You know, it's like what would have happened if Hitler had, you know, never gotten kicked out of art class? Explain it to me in detail. It's like, well, well, that's not, you know, that's not fair, but but you kind of have to do this. You're you're given this task because this is one of those areas that the market, it's been so long since the the emergence of the automobile, it really hasn't been a free market. And so it it requires a tremendous amount of imagination. And uh, I applaud you for for doing that and for um, for showing examples for creating, you know, beautiful neighborhoods and, and developments. So uh, Vince, where would you like people to go if they want to follow you or, or learn more about what you're interested in? Are you on Twitter or where, where would you recommend? Uh, yeah, I guess my Twitter feed is um, Vincent G. Graham. Um, the uh, we do have a, a website. We've just we we uh, Ion Group is um, IonGroup.com. We actually sold our domain name recently, so we're in the process of changing over. So you might not be able to reach our new website, which is L O C I Low Key is how we pronounce it Low Key South dot com. Um, but you know, look me up on YouTube or or uh, just online, and you can find some things on me. Um, Isaac, uh, it's been a real pleasure, and I'll have to say that uh, I feel like you know you were such an inspiration in practices. You're doing a similar thing by by innovating in, in the education field, and I just really applaud you. And again, uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. Hey, Vince, I look forward to uh, grabbing drinks someday when none of the children are going to school and none of the streets are government owned. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. Talk to you later.